Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome and thanks for tuning in to the Two Fit Podcast, hosted by the Two Fit guys, Jake and Josh. Now, Two Fit, by definition, is actively pursuing a state of health and well being beyond perceived limitations. So, if you're looking to push the boundaries of performance mentally, physically, and everywhere in between, then you have come to the right place. On the Two Fit Podcast, we will be interviewing and having fireside chats with renowned experts from doctors and strength and conditioning coaches to athletes and entrepreneurs. Our goal is to extract tools and tricks of the trade that you can implement, whether you're a world-class athlete, weekend warrior, entrepreneur, or grinding out the eight to five, all in order to assist you on your journey to becoming Two Fit. So on today's podcast, we had the opportunity to sit down with one of the most brilliant, just absolute wonderful minds that we have ever come into contact with. Um, honestly, this conversation could have gone on for hours, and we're definitely going to have him back on, and we're excited to bring him to you today. His name is Dr. Roger Hall. We met him at a entrepreneur conference we were at in St. Louis a few months back, and then we had the opportunity to sit down with him here in Denver at another conference we were just at recently. A little side note, and we get into it in this interview, me and Josh, a couple South Texas boys, thought it was a great idea to fly from Houston, 4.30 a.m., into Denver, and then we drive straight to Pikes Peak, and let me tell you that that was not our best idea, and altitude sickness is very real, and we have now done our research, and have vowed to never let that happen again, and so we'll put in the show notes some some tools and tricks that, that we've learned since then, like I said, to never let that happen to us again. But back to Dr. Hall. He's a business psychologist by trade. And basically what he does, and he won't tell you this, but he has the ability to enter your mind, figure out its inner workings, and then escape without you ever even knowing he was there. Some have even referred to him as a mental ninja. Now, he's been using... This approach, and he's been spreading his methodologies to the university scene. He's been all over the continental U.S., from Ball State to Capital University to the University of Health Sciences to his alma mater of Ohio State and the University of Utah, actually. In addition, he also founded his own consultation firm called Compass Consultation. And what he does there, he's worked with Fortune 20 leaders all the way down to just small entrepreneurs, and he helps these people think more clearly act more decisively, and interact more effectively. Now, if that wasn't enough, Dr. Hall is also an author. He has his book out on leadership. It's called Expedition. And you can find that on his website, compassconsultation.com. He also has a forthcoming book that's due out this next year, and that is called DIY Brain, or Do-It-Yourself Brain. Lastly, he's an amazing speaker. You could honestly, like I said, just listen to the guy forever. He really grabs your attention and keeps it there. And that's just because he has so much great content to share. And if you want to find out more about him, he's got his own YouTube channel. And there you can find interviews and speeches and lectures on anywhere from creating good habits to making better decisions to how to deal with information overload. So without further ado, let's get into this interview with Dr. Roger Hall. And I'm going to invite you to let the man enter your mind. Okay, so today we're sitting down with Dr. Roger Hall, a psychologist by trade and also a consultant. Um, really just a great mind, a great speaker, and we're blessed to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Grateful to be here. 
So Roger, let's give, uh, just give some of the folks out there kind of your background, what, uh, what you're working on now, maybe some past projects. Sure, sure. I, uh, I am a psychologist. Uh, right now I, I call myself a business psychologist because I, I do performance psychology in the business setting. Uh, I've been doing business psychology for the better part of the last decade, if not, I guess it's been more than that now. Um, started out my career as a clinician, uh, rapidly discovered that, uh, I really was good at it, but I didn't really like it and it was exhausting work. So, um, uh, after after a while, uh, repositioned my career, hired somebody to redevelop me and re-specialize as a consulting psychologist and um, have been grateful to be in this business uh, ever since. So I got my Ph.D. from Ohio State, did my internship at the University of Utah, took my first position at Ball State University in Indiana, and then uh, worked part-time at a church uh, in uh, central Ohio and started my own practice uh, in 1993, where I founded a, a company called Compass Consultation, which is where I, I do most of my work. So you work primarily with entrepreneurs, business owners right now. Right? That's correct. That's correct. I, my, my three, my three groups of people that I work with are executives, professionals, and business owners. So people who work at high levels in large companies, uh, the executives, the professionals who, people who are lawyers, who are physicians, dentists, accountants, financial planners, um, insurance uh, producers, uh, those professional people who are looking to enhance their performance, and finally business owners, uh, entrepreneurs in businesses from uh, 5 to $250 million in annual revenue and 5 to 250 employees. Uh, that, that's kind of my target niche. Um, I have worked with Fortune 20 companies, grateful to be working with them, but I don't have a squad of people to go in for their 10,000 people who need coaching. So I mean, basically you're going in there analyzing their environment and seeing how you can take their business to the next level. Yeah, I, I, in, in, and in a particular way. My job, it, my, my one trick is this. I train leaders to monitor and manage their thinking. People ask me all the time, you know, or they tell me all the time, we, we need better results. We need better outcomes. And I say, okay, where, where are those going to come from? And they say, well, they're going to come from change behavior. We're going to, we're going to monitor the, and we're going to imitate the best practices of, you know, our competing companies and we're going to imitate those and we're going to be successful. And I say, okay, where, where do those best practices come from? And at which point people say, I, 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 uh, and they don't know. And, and best practices, new behaviors all come from better thinking. And so I don't teach people Mensa or Sudoku sorts of tricks. You know, I'm not going to teach them to do crossword puzzles. What I teach them to do is to monitor their thinking. We all have a stream of consciousness that runs through our head all day long. And very few people take a ladle and sample what's in that stream of consciousness. They don't know what they're thinking. So we slow people down so that they can monitor their thinking. Once they're able to monitor their thinking, then they can attack the the um, self-deceiving or destructive patterns of thinking that get them into trouble. They're able to then monitor and conserve their decision-making power. I'll, I'll give a quick example. Um, what's the number one health problem in the United States? Obesity. Obesity. Absolutely. Number one health problem. People think if I, mon if I just change the behavior, then I'll get the right result, Right. And they think they can do that with their business. We'll just change the behavior, get the right result. I can tell you the behavior that you need to do to lose weight. It takes five seconds. You eat less and you exercise more. Boom, we're done. 
Why is it that obesity is the number one problem? The reason it's the number one problem is that it's very difficult to manage your thinking about food. Every day we make a thousand or more decisions about the food we're going to eat. If I have a cup of coffee, that's an easy decision, right? No. Let's look at the decisions involved in a cup of coffee. Number one, am I going to have the cup of coffee? Number two, am I going to, what size of cup of coffee am I going to have? Number three, Am I going to have regular decaf? Am I going to have, you know, one of those esoteric dark blends? Am I going to have the blonde or, you know, whatever? Then I've got to answer the question, do I want cream? Do I want real cream or do I want fake cream? Then I've got sweetener. Do I want artificial sweetener? Do I want sugar? And then, or do I want honey or do I want maple syrup? And then the next question then becomes, then do I want to sprinkle vanilla in it? And then how much sugar and how much vanilla? And so, on a simple cup of coffee, you can see I've already made about 19 decisions. Well, every day we have a daily decisional load. We make decisions every day, and they all add to our daily decisional load. When we reach the end of our decisional load, our brain becomes fatigued. We can't make any more decisions. So like if I was to tell you guys, okay, drop and give me 100 push-ups. Well, you guys might be able to do it. Most people can't. <laughs> but they reach the end of their push-up load. And so at the end of whatever that number that is, you cannot do any more push-ups. And if I say, if, if I yell at you, if I tell you, you know, get on it, make, you know, do more push-ups, you're physically exhausted. The same is true with decisions. Our brain is a physical entity, just like our muscles, and it fatigues. It uses fuel, just like our muscles. In fact, our brain is 3% or to 5% of our body mass and uses 20% of the glucose that we take in from our food. So it is a disproportionate user of energy from the food we eat. I mean, we're burning, we're burning all day long by thinking. Well, if you've used up all your decisions, your brain becomes fatigued. You've burned up all the glucose. Your brain is just tired. So what do you need to do? You need to not think anymore. So at the end of the day, people get home from work and what do they do? They stand in front of the kitchen, in front of the refrigerator in the kitchen. And they go, what do you want to eat? I don't know, what do you want to eat? And they open the refrigerator, oh, there's leftover pork chops, I don't really feel like that. And then they go, I don't know, what's in the freezer? And oh, we got frozen chicken. Yeah, but then we got a thought, and we got to cut <laughs> vegetables, and then we got to choose spices. And then there's something at the refrigerator that always, always saves you. What's the thing at the refrigerator that always saves you? It's the magnet from the pizza uh, place. I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. You go, you want pizza? Yeah, sounds good. So you die, you know, you die on the go. You want, you want the regular? Yeah, deliver. Yeah. Okay. Boom. You've made in one decision, rather than the thousand decisions to make yourself a healthy meal, you've made an unhealthy meal. So we fall into these habits of thought about food, which is I'm really hungry. I can't think anymore. So I'm going to obtain something that requires no thought. Healthy eating requires a great deal of thought. Unhealthy eating requires a drive-through. And it's so easy now. So when you go through the drive-through, you could get healthy things, but they're not labeled number one, number two, number three. Right. Okay. You don't even have to say what you're ordering. You don't even say what you're ordering. <laughs> I, I want a number two. What size? Large. You know, I mean, you know, and so you're done. You've made two decisions rather than the 15. So it's easy to make bad food choices. What I do with people in the workplace is I help them recognize you've got to conserve your decision-making capacity so that you can make the more important decisions. And that's why it's so important to set up habits. Habits, especially habits of thought, allow you to shortcut so you don't have to think about things. So my typical breakfast when I'm on the road 
is this. Two eggs scrambled with cheese and a side of sauce, a glass of orange juice and a cup of coffee, two creams, one sugar. I'm done. I don't have to think about it anymore. And so when, you know, the server comes to me and they say, well, would you like potatoes with that? No. Would you like bread with that? No. You want anything else with that? No. Because if I go to the buffet, then it's like, ooh, waffle. That was tasty. <laughs> oh, that yeah. looks good. Oh, potatoes. Ooh, man. Maybe I could get, you know. And so what I do is I have habits in my diet so that I can conserve what's in my brain for the more important decisions of the day. So you've already hardwired those decisions. It's almost like someone pre-planning all their meals on a Sunday, having them in the fridge, you pop them out and right. But see that, but the the problem with pre-planning on Sunday is it requires all your cognitive effort to do all that. And so you have to set up habits of, okay, we don't do anything on Sunday except make our meals. And so that's one way to manage it. Why does Jenny Craig do so well? Because they take all of your food out of your house and replace it with no decision food. Oh, it's Tuesday. I'm going to eat the Tuesday box. What are you going to eat Wednesday? I'm going to eat the Wednesday box. There's no decisions involved. So it's very easy because there are no decisions involved. I'm kind of curious to find, is this, um, there's a lot of research that I've, I've seen out there about willpower and how it's quantifiable now and you kind of run out near the end of the day. Yeah. Is that... Yeah. Uh, so that, that work, uh, the, the summary of that research is, is in a book called Willpower, mm-hmm. Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength by a uh, University of Florida professor, Roy Baumeister. It is a great read. It's definitely worth reading. And he talks about a thing called ego depletion. And ego depletion is this, is that when you resist temptation for so long, you eventually collapse and you can't do anymore. And so they measure this, and I'm going to give you a rough approximation of, of a number of different studies, but if they have people go do hard math problems, impossible to solve math problems, they know about how long it takes. Let's say it takes them about a half an hour before people fatigue out and they go forget it. If they put them in a room with like broccoli and say, you know, do the math problem, don't eat the broccoli, How long does it take people? On average, about a half hour, and they fatigue out. They just get too tired. If you put them in a room with the math problems and a plate of chocolate chip cookies and say, don't eat the chocolate chip cookies, they fatigue out faster on the math problems because they're using some of their supply of willpower to keep from eating the cookies. Because you've put that variable in. Because you put that variable in. And so you're absolutely right that that when – when we're resisting temptation, we become ego depleted or brain fatigued. And so we need, we need proper nutrition, proper rest to keep our brains at highest functioning. And so business leaders need this all the time because they don't get paid to dig ditches. They get paid to make decisions and people entrust professionals to make good decisions. So, you know, I work with judges a, a lot in Baumeister's book. Um, he talks about a, a study of parole hearings with Israeli judges and the parole rate at about 10 in the morning is about 10%. Only 10% of the people who go up for parole get parole because a non-decision is like, I, you know, if the judge is up there, I, I don't I, just leave him in jail. You know, that delays the decision. Well, right after lunch, after they've had a protein rich lunch, the brain has all is converted this protein into glucose. Their brain is firing. They got an even source of fuel for their brain. 65% of people get paroled because they have enough capacity to say yes. 
You know, leaving them in jail is a eh, delay decision. So I see this in executives all the time, people who own their own businesses. When they're poorly slept, you know, poorly fed, um, and over-decided, they tend to delay decisions that are essentially become no decisions. Are you going to pursue this opportunity? Oh, we're going to get to it tomorrow, which means they never get to it. So they miss opportunity because they're brain fatigued. Now, on that topic, um, it's very interesting. Do you see a common theme of diet that maybe works better, either a morning routine of diet? I know you said you stick to the same thing when you're on the road. When I'm on the road, yeah. Um, I know that for myself and Jake, we've both experimented with ketosis um, multiple times and, you know, high fat diet, low carb, or yep. at least carb during certain windows, moderate to high protein. And we find that and as many others, your brain and your, your functioning and your mental capacity is just at another level on a high healthy fat diet and a lower carb. And then you up the carbs and lower the fats. And it's like, yeah, my performance is better, but I'm not as mentally sharp. It's hard to find that middle road, but do you find that maybe asking executives or business owners this like a common diet that works better than others? You know, um, we do talk about diet, and I talk about how important it is to go heavy protein early in the day. Um, I'm not as smart about nutrition as you guys are, but I do know that in my own personal experience, if I have a heavy carb breakfast at 10 a.m., I'm worthless. You know, I, I can't think straight. Back to bed. <laughs> you know, and I'm yawning. I'm pretending not to yawn like I'm covering my mouth because I'm coughing, but I'm really yawning. People engage me and hire me so that I think. So my performance is my brain performance. So I've got to give it the right stuff. So, again, I'm not as smart as you guys are about nutrition, but I have found that heavy protein early in the morning gives me that even burn through lunch. And I try to protein up at lunch. So I have an even burn through dinner. So you do stay, do you stay moderate or low carb most of the time, just naturally? Uh, you know, my weakness is tortilla chips. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if those are at the table, I'm done, you know, especially if there's yeah. guacamole. Out of willpower. Now, do you, do you recommend like a, a cheat day? Like, so people can. So, yeah. So this goes back to the research on self-control is that a cheat day allows the person to stop resisting the temptation. Well, then they can use that same brain power that they've been using to resist temptation to, to recover. So yeah, I, I think a cheat day harnesses that idea that at some point you're going to brain fatigue out and you're going to resist temptation. Then you combine that with the guilt and the, you know, the, the self-recrimination, all of which occupies a lot more brain space. So set aside, it's like, Hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go crazy on Saturday or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And then you've fulfilled your temptation, right? And you don't have to resist it as much. So yeah, it's a practical application of a brilliant observation. I think to bring that full circle, people don't realize how emotional food is and how rewarding it can be. And kind of the flip side of that, say, you know, you have a, an obese kid, right, who's trying to get on a certain diet to, to, you know, trim down. Yet on his walk to school, he's got to pass by his McDonald's. He's got to pass by his Whataburger, the big soda drinks at the school and everything else. And all that stimulating, you know, those reward centers. Kind of what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, food is absolutely an emotional experience. When we think about neurotransmitters, right? Neurotransmitters are the things that make our brains go, like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, acetylcholine, GABA, you know, a host of other things. Where do those come from? Well, they don't come from a pill bottle. They come from short strings of amino acids that 
these factories in our bodies, these chemical factories string together. And so there are foods that give you these certain amino acids that combine quite easily into those feel-good neurotransmitters. Okay, and so you get a surplus supply of things that are going to turn into dopamine and serotonin and ooh baby, you know, <laughs> you you hit the reward center and you've hit the the smooth emotion center and you're feeling good. So yeah, of course, of course, food is an emotional thing. So would you say it's it's not as much about oh I want the taste of that burger? What's really going on is I want that dopamine hit. Well, I mean, people don't go, huh? Gee, I like a dopamine. <laughs> right, hit. right. But 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 I mean. Food tastes good. It's, it's part of our sensory experience. I mean, we love good music. We love things that are pretty to look at and we love things that taste good. That's just part of the love of life. And so I'm not, I, I certainly don't want to tell people, you know, go on some sort of, you know, abstinence fest on everything. I mean, that's, that's a boring life. Spinach and walnuts. I mean, I like spinach and walnuts, but if that was it, yeah, actually I had that for lunch. Um, but if that was it, yeah, that would be an awful life. So, you know, we, we are creatures built for novelty. Our brains adapt to the same thing all the time. So we need the contrasts in order to experience richness. You can't taste the salty unless you've tasted the sweet and vice versa. You can't enjoy the sweet unless you've had the salty. That proverb gets at how our brains wired for habituation, which is that if you give it a if you give the brain a constant stimulus, it will eventually habituate to that and cut it off. Let me give you an example. There's a kind of trimmer called a gross motor trimmer where a person's hands will shake dramatically. So they can't hold a cup. They can't hold it. You know, they, they can't hold a spoon. They can't hold a fork. Well, they've localized uh, for this one particular kind of gross motor trimmer. They've localized the brain location. So what they do is they feed a wire under the skin, up through the back of the head, down through the skull, into that spot, and then have it come out at the belt line and attach it to a battery. And what they do is they have people push the button. They push the button on the battery on their belt, and their gross motor trimmer goes away. So then they're able to hold a fork. They're able to hold a glass. They're able to go on with their life. My thinking is like, dude, get a roll of tape and tape that button down. (laughs) And then the gross motor trimmer goes away. But the brain is such an instrument of habituation that within two weeks, the gross motor tremor comes back with that constant stimulation. What it teaches us is that our brain needs variety in order to adapt. And so it's constantly learning and changing. So if you give it just spinach and walnuts, you're going to be bored right away. I mean, the example I use all the time is having caviar once is a delight having caviar every day just becomes fish eggs. And, and, you know, we just get tired of it. So food is a kind of variety. Our brains need that variety. And so a cheat day is good. Coming up with different flavors is good. So back to the kid walking to school, resisting temptation of the big burger stand, the decision ahead of time is most important. When I started out in my career, I started out in the substance abuse field. And I'm not going to say you, there's food addiction because you can live without alcohol. You can live without amphetamines. You can live without uh, opium, but you can't live without food. So I don't like to call it a food addiction. But there are some similar principles on resisting temptation. So I had a, a man come in who was a uh, 
a drunk. You know, he was a heavy drinker and he was drunk all, all the time. And I said, so when are your points of temptation? And he said, uh, driving home from work. And I said, so how does that work? And he says, well, you know, I stop for, you know, you know, some gum or to fill up the car with gas. And then I just walk into the gas station, get a 12 or a 24 pack. And I said, okay. And so what we try to teach people in those cases is, well, you know, when you're at the gas station, just resist temptation. Dude, by that point, it's too late. And so I said, so we're going to come up with um, a plan ahead of time. So before you get in the car, you know, we're going to, we're going to figure out, you know, what places do you have to resist? And so I said, so on your way home from work, how many places can you stop to get beer? He says 37. I said, think about it. You know, take a second. I mean, he immediately came out with 37. I said, how do you know that number? And he says, well, I don't want anybody to think I'm a drunk. So I go to a different place every day and rotate through. Okay. So he was buying a 12 or 24 pack every day. And so we said, okay, we, we really got we got to do something different. So there's a, a body of research by a guy named, um, Alan Marlott called apparently, uh, irrelevant decisions. Um, it's relapse prevention. And he says that people make apparently irrelevant decisions that take them closer to or further away from temptation. And he applied it to substance abuse, but you can apply it to food, which is before this kid's walking to school, he's got to have already made the decisions about what he's going to do about food. Because if he's halfway to school and he realizes, oh, I'm a little bit thirsty and he doesn't have a bottle of water with him, he's going to get a big gulp. Or if he doesn't have a dessert for lunch, he's going to get a Twinkie. You know, so he's got to have made the decisions well in advance of the temptation. So my, my guy who was a drunk, he had to fill up his car with gaths with his wife every Saturday so he didn't get tempted. And when they went to the grocery store on Saturday, he had to buy himself a pack of gum and a roll of mints and da 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 All the stuff that he was going to use as temptation sparks, you know, these apparently irrelevant decisions. So for a kid who's trying not to gain weight, it's how do I make the decisions before I leave the house? So that I have satiated all that stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's the old advice. Don't go to the grocery store hungry because you buy everything. Well, this kid needs to not go to school hungry so he doesn't buy everything. Sounds like you got to be prepared and you got to create those habits to almost manipulate your mind is what you're saying to kind of overcome all that. And I just want to get your opinion on, we've kind of heard kind of the old adage that it takes about 21 days to either create or break a yeah, habit. Lie from the pit of hell. Right. It is absolutely a lie because you know, look, look at cell phones. Okay. You guys have a smartphone. You guys, I don't know what kind of smartphones do you guys got? I got an iPhone. You got an iPhone. Okay. So Samsung. when you got your, when you got your first phone, your first smartphone, how long did it take you to figure out how to dial it? Less than no, no time. No time at all. But you know, the only transfer of knowledge you ever had about that was when you were on the school bus and you were riding on the glass in the steam. Because that's essentially what you're doing with a phone is you're, you're moving your finger around on a piece of glass. They're all brand new habits. You haven't had to unlearn anything. Now, if we flipped the phone so that the numbers were upside down like a calculator, you'd be lost all day long because that is a very similar habit. And so what as adults that we're dealing with is we're not learning new habits. You can learn a new habit in a week. But as adults, we're not learning new habits. We're replacing old patterns that are not as productive 
with new patterns that are more productive. And here's where neuroplasticity comes in. Every time you think a thought, every time you engage in a behavior, the neurons in your brain are firing and they are connecting. So the, the adage is what fires together, wires together. And so your brain grows new neurons the more you do a behavior, the more you think a thought to reinforce that. So you start with a little strand, one single neuron that carries that message. And then you think it again, and it grows more dendrites so that the, the message gets transferred better. And the theory, we don't have facts on this yet, but the theory is that the more you think a thought, you do a behavior, the more neurons grow together. And so you get one, and then you get two, and then you get four, and then you get eight. And it goes from a little tiny trail in the forest to a four-lane superhighway. Well, if you do a habit long enough, you've got this four-lane superhighway grown in your head to transfer that information. So when you're trying to change the behavior, you've got to cut a new path. And you're, it's, you know, which is easier to do, to cut a new path or drive down a four-lane superhighway? Well, you're going to keep doing the old habit until you carve a new path in your brain, which will take weeks and weeks and months and months so it's definitely not a 10 or 21 day it's no a, it's no a, it's, it's a habit practice it's a habit practice i mean give yourself six months to a year or more so i i tell this example a lot of time in the speeches i give when i was 33 years old i'm getting my teeth cleaned okay we've all had our teeth cleaned i believe hygienists take a course in guilt and shame <laughs> torture I mean, there's there, there's the physical pain, but then there's the guilt and shame. So at the end of the cleaning, the hygienist says, well, Roger, I, I see from the pattern of plaque buildup on your teeth that you're a scrubber. And I say, you got me. I'm totally a scrubber. I get it. Back and forth, back and forth. I know I shouldn't do it. She goes, now, it's important that you brush your teeth in circles. And I said, yeah, I know circles. And she goes, because you don't want to visit the periodontist. So you've got to get under the gum line. I said, oh, I've totally, it's like seared in my memory now. I got it. I am not going to be a scrubber. She goes, okay. So there I am. I'm, I'm sitting in the chair. I've got a lavender bib on. I've just been guilted and shamed by a dental hygienist. She goes, now watch this. And she reaches to the cupboard and pulls out that giant set of choppers. You know, the ones that they bring in for yeah. dental hygienist day in the, in the third grade. Like the jaws of life. Right. And then she brings out that big toothbrush, right, with the little pointy thing on the end. And she starts demonstrating. And so she's going, circle, circle. You see how that is? Under the gum line. I go, oh, wow, I am never going to forget this. And I wouldn't have. But then she doubled down and she said, okay, now you try. So here I have, I've got this big set of choppers under my arm and there I am with a lavender bib doing circles. And she goes, I think you've got it. So that night I get home. I'm a scrubber, dude. I mean, I've been scrubbing. Okay. I've got to change this habit that's highly ingrained. So that night, what am I doing? Circle, 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 spit, circle, 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 spit. I'm good, right? Because I've been guilted and shamed. Next morning, I wake up, circle, circle. Oh, crap, I'm late. I go right back to it. Now, I am, I do circles now, but it took me, you know, months and months, not two weeks. This brings up the question for me is, this sounds similar. What do you think of the term of muscle memory? Because when you say- It's like not muscle memory. Right. It's, it's neuronal memory. Yeah. And so- you know, when you have a guy, like, let's use Tiger Woods, for example. Yeah. He's trying to change his swing. He's done it four so or five hard. times. And he's playing on these motor ingrams, right, through the brain yeah. to get the muscles to do what he wants them to do. Right. And on his new swing plane. Right. And 
and I think a lot of people view it as, oh, why can't he just hit the ball better or play better? And people don't really, and maybe he doesn't even realize sometimes how long it takes to change that because it's not just a habit of my daily practice. Am I going to drink coffee with cream or not? It's practice physically in a sport to change your patterns. Right. Great athletes don't think about their performance. They do their performance because it's a rehearsed pattern of behavior that they've done thousands of times to the point where it's quote effortless because they've created four lane super highways in the motor and the somatosensory cortex in, in their brain. The motor cortex is the part where you're willfully moving your muscles. The somatosensory cortex is the part where you're aware of where your body is. And so, you know, any great athlete who's changing a part of their performance has to rewire those parts of the brain. It takes, it takes weeks and weeks, months and months, perhaps years to get it right until it becomes an unconscious activity again. And so is there any particular time that just dependent on that person, that individual, right? Cause if even think like a quarterback, if he's trying to deliver it more vertically instead of out to the side, that could take years. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, right. Yeah. I mean, poor Tim Tebow. I mean, he's been trying to rebuild his, 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 his pass, right? And maybe he's had success, but apparently not enough for the Eagles because he's got this long ingrained pattern of passing a certain way, 18 months of regular discipline practice in a constrained environment. He can probably do it reliably, put him back out on the field in the pressure of the game situation. He's going to revert to his old habits. Give him time, practice, and rehearsal, he can do that. But the NFL has to decide, do we want to spend money on the guy while he's relearning? Does the new road ever lay over the old one? The the new road, let's say it runs close to the old one or parallel to the old one. Unless you have a stroke, you're not going to unlearn riding a bike. And so just think, you're never going to unlearn that bad behavior or that unproductive behavior, but you're going to create other highways that are easier to travel down. So what happens in a jungle when you don't go down the pathway for long enough? It grows over, but the pathway doesn't go away. So if you've built a four-lane superhighway through the jungle and you stop using it, eventually the trees are going to grow back up, but there's still the roadbed is still there. And, and that's the problem with with bad habits is that they're easy to reignite because the roadbed is already there. Some great stuff. I guess we should uh, kind of move to the portion where we just want to ask you some, some questions that we ask everybody. Okay. Ask uh, away. So what's, what's one thing that you know you do differently than most people? One thing that I do differently than most people um, I eat my pizza crust first. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Because I'm an optimist. I believe I'm going to save the best for last, and it'll be there. Wow. So how did that start, though? Well, because, you know, I was eating pizza, and I was really enjoying all of it until the crust. And I thought, why don't I start eating this first? Because this is the least good part of the pizza. That's what I do now. It's like I used to say when the blue M&Ms first came out, my grandparents would buy me a pack of M&Ms. I love my blue's my favorite color. So I'd eat all the other ones. I'd save the blue for last. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah. My, my grandmother would say, you know, those don't taste any different. No, they do to me. You yeah. know? It's more fun to eat the blue ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Since we're kind of into the nutritional exercise kind of field, we kind of like to ask everybody, what is your own definition of exercise? And what does exercise mean to you? 
what is exercise? I mean, it's just yeah. like, it's like moving my body to, <laughs> to sweat. You know, the, the lie I tell myself about exercise is I, I hate to exercise. The reality is I hate the first five minutes of exercise. Once I'm at minute six, I, I'm good. But I've just got to tell myself, you know, it's hard to get started, but once you get started, you're going to feel better, um, six minutes in. And, right. and sometimes I'll even, you know, look at my watch and go, awful. And then, oh, I feel good now. You know, I exercise because, I know it's good for me physically, but I also know it's good for my brain. And I just heard somebody the other day saying that that they know of a school that doesn't have recess for kids. What kind of crazy idea is that? I mean, we all need recess. We all need to go run around and play. For me, I like to exercise um, by hiking out in the mountains. You know, that's that's for me the funnest. You know, I just love to see that stuff. I love to be out in nature but since i you know live in ohio there aren't a lot of mountains so i do other things and but i know i i, I know i do it because i know how i how good i feel afterwards yeah no fourteen thousand footers there uh not yet yeah no. not yet no yeah yeah we we told this story a few times this weekend but when we flew in wednesday we left from houston which is about sea level and we had it in mind to go climb Pike's Peak. <laughs> You're funny boys. <laughs> and uh, we knew better, but we just figured we could best it. You know, altitude sickness isn't going to happen to us. And uh, even driving up there, and we parked, and it was we only hiked maybe five miles up, five miles down. We didn't do the whole thing because we didn't have enough time. But even just driving up there, and we got out, we were already a little, little dizzy and lightheaded. But we just kind of pushed through, and we get to the top, and our heads are just pounding pounding and i'm feeling sick and they have their world famous coffee and donuts up there and so we're like that's a great idea let's do that (laughs) get the mug get the t-shirt we had no water all day because we were traveling so i picked up like a gatorade clearly from the sea level it's terrible right and we're both up there chowing down these coffee and donuts and just looking like hell and just (laughs) wanting to lay down on the floor and we're like all right let's just make our way back down and I was like, I'm just going on the road. I don't care how long it takes me. I'm just going down a smooth road. I'm not going back down those boulders. And we had a park ranger stop us and tell us, no, you got to, it's illegal to, to hike on the road. So you, you got to go back up a half mile. Take the trail back down. <laughs> yeah. And well, take the what, trail back what down. trail there was. Oh my gosh. It was mainly sheer rocks and boulders. It was a long, slow walk down and we get in the car and I was in no position to drive. So Josh takes the keys. And uh, at one point he asked me, he's like, do you want me to just go get the car and get you? I was, I was not in good shape and we're winding back down the mountain. And I told him just pull over and I, I lost those coffee and donuts pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. That's, Lesson learned. I was like, is this, is this ever going to end? Yeah, you know? I, I used to live in Salt Lake City, and so you learn about how vulnerable you are to altitude. You know, when I moved there, it probably took me about two months before my, you know, I got enough red blood cells to fuel me because of the altitude change. I mean, it's a real deal. And um, my son, uh, a couple, well, I guess it was last summer, worked the entire summer in Steamboat Springs. And so he spent a lot of time at high altitudes. And when he got back to Lake Michigan, he was jumping in the water. And he said, man, I could hold my breath for like a minute and a half, which was about 30 seconds or 45 seconds longer than he could the previous summer before he had boosted his blood. So, you know, that high altitude thing, you're you're lucky. You're not, not our dead. best idea. <laughs> not our best idea. So, Roger, what does the um, 
your morning routine look like? Do you have any, any morning routines you stick to? I did want to ask you, I know you mentioned earlier about kind of the con- getting the business owners and executives be more conscious in their daily activity. Yeah. And you and I briefly spoke in Phoenix back in March about mindfulness. Yeah. So do you have a meditation practice or do you have a morning routine? You know, I, I live and work in two different towns, so my routine's a little different in each town. Um, and my particular temptation is information is candy to me. And so for me, um, you know, quiet time usually happens in the car. When I'm, you know, there's a stretch of highway that I, that I drive an awful lot that's not heavily trafficked, and I can just get into a think zone there where I can focus and concentrate. Um, my biggest, you know, honestly, my biggest problem is slowing my brain down. So I know that when I slow my brain down, I'm in a quiet place, I do better. I wish I was better at it. Have you read 10% Happier by Dan Harris? I know we, I think we, we talked about, about it, but book. I haven't read it yet. It's a great book. It's we'll have to book. put that in the show notes as well. Cause okay. that's a, that's a great resource. And he, he puts a cool spin on it, uh, on uh, his journey into how he found meditation and kind of his take on it now. And uh, that's a, that's a really cool book. Yeah. To kind I, of I mean, from. I'm, I'm, you know, in the monitor and manage your thinking part, I'm great at the managing thing. Uh, but, my biggest challenge is the slowing my brain down so that I'm, I'm able to monitor it better. You know, my wife has taken me to a, a bunch of yoga classes and I really am bad at yoga. Uh, but the, the really good part about that discipline is the quiet and, and the time of reflection. And, and that for me, you know, is as good as the physical workout. Are there any, uh, any supplements you take or would recommend? Uh, gosh, you know, I, I'm like an old person I, with this, you know, I take a, a multivitamin, I take B for my thinking, I take C for my immune system, I take, uh, I take a, a thing to improve my cognitive ability, I take what, zinc. What, what do you take there, if you don't mind me asking? I take a, a supplement made by a company called Shackley called MindWorks, and it's a, it's a proprietary blend of a bunch of different stuff, all, all designed to, keep the brain working as well as possible what else do i take fish oil i you know i I take fish oil about every day and i take acidophilus bifidus things for probiotics yeah probiotic for gut health because i know if you don't have good gut health then you got stuff transferring through your gut into your bloodstream that shouldn't get there so i work it sounds like you have a pill planner i do i do i'm like an old man i have like a pill thing and like my wife's like you're like an old man. It's like, yeah, but it's not medicine. It's all, it's yeah. all vitamins. <laughs> There's a lot of studies coming out. I'm sure you're aware about the gut microbiome and how it's affecting the brain and almost as it's referred to as the second brain. Yeah. Yeah. The gut brain is really important. And, and that's one of the reasons I do that is again, you know, I'm not, I'm not a great athlete. I'm just, you know, I'm just a you know, kind of a, a guy who exercises to stay in shape. But I recognize that if I don't take care of my body my body is the you know the handy container for my brain and so i got to take care of my body which fuels my brain which allows me to do all the things i like yeah there's some new research out there that i mean i'm not well read on it but i've heard about if you can restore that that microbiome they can even delay the onset of alzheimer's kind of reverse dementia even a little bit um i read a really on, on your same topic i read a really interesting study uh, it was done in the UK, and I can't remember the year. We'll have to find it, put it in the notes, and I'll email it to you. Um, and it was it came by chance, and it was patients that were having ulcers in the stomach. 
there were a certain number of patients that they had actually cut the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And other patients, they had not. The patients that actually had their vagus nerve suffered, severed to reduce the ulcers experienced no early onset or later in life dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm. The ones that in, kept their vagus nerve, I think it was an 80% higher increase. That's not a recommendation to cut the vagus nerve. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. We but, are not doctors, nor do we pretend to be, be them. But um, that was very interesting on how the gut relates back to the brain. And uh, I know they're trying to explore that a little further because that was fairly recent and uh, kind of by chance. Yeah, there's a book that I read recently called The Second Brain that explores the role of the the ganglion in the gut. I mean, we, we have number numbers of ner- ganglions or nerve bundles that are some in the gut, um, and some in other parts of the brain, and, and it's it serves as a feedback loop. And is so, that Doctor Perlmutter's book by chance? I can't remember the author's name. All right, well, Roger, we know you're a man in high demand, so thanks for sitting in with us. Though. We really enjoyed it; a bunch of good stuff. I'm grateful that you guys asked me great questions. A lot of fun talking to you, and uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Two Fit Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Two Fit USA, the sports nutrition company owned and operated by the Two Fit Guys. To show our appreciation for you tuning into the podcast, we would like to give you a 10% off your entire order at TwoFitUSA.com. All of our products are sugar-free, paleo-friendly, gluten-free, non-GMO, and a whole list of other buzzwords. So hop on over to TwoFitUSA.com. Don't forget to use your promo code FIT1, that's F-I-T-1, at checkout. We highly value and appreciate your feedback, so please leave a review about the products and the podcast at our website, 2 under the podcast and products pages. You can also leave a review on iTunes. Now, if we happen to read your review during one of our podcasts, you'll receive a one-month free subscription of all 2Fit products. So write something noteworthy. If not, we probably won't read it anyway. So go leave a review, listen to the next episode, and till next time.